0: The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org.
1: That shows something about your trustworthiness and gives us great confidence that you will, in fact, come again and be with us in fullness in the flesh, face to face. We will dwell with Christ and see him, not through a glass dimly, not just in spirit and in mind, but with our own eyes we will see him and worship him in thanks forever. God with us in fullness. We thank you for that. Lord, now we are still here, though, in this world. And I pray that You would come and be here in our midst in Your Scriptures now, opening them to us, teaching us, talking to us, guiding us. Lord, work in our minds so as to vividly show us Yourself, to show us what You have done in the past, and... Call that to mind as more than a fact. Call it to mind as a real life and heart changing truth. You have to do that. That's a supernatural work. Would you do that please? And then use that to turn us, to make us different today and tomorrow and the next day. We live here now in need of you to be present with us in power. So I ask you to do that. By your Spirit now, do that through your Scriptures in this room. Open our minds and our hearts. Change us to the glory of Christ and for the good of this, your church. Amen. Our passage today, the end of Deuteronomy chapter 15 and on into chapter 16, turns our attention now to the three great worship feasts of the nation of Israel. Instituted by God to help His people remember something crucial from their past. And as we're talking about remembering, we need to understand what that means. Of course, remembering is not simply some sort of a a cognitive recalling of a thing that happened before. To talk about remembering in this context is to have an issue or a fact or an event remain vivid and alive in life so that it has a motivating influence on day-to-day living. That's what remembering is. And we have to realize this is how God often works in the Bible. It's a little bit of ringing. If I can get the ringing turned down, i appreciate that. God, very often, if you've been a Christian long enough, you realize there really isn't a whole lot of new information. You're, you're unlikely to learn something totally new that you've never heard before. So what God is doing with you, moment by moment, week by week, year by year, is not constantly teaching you new things. He's reminding you urging you to remember that which has come before and now live in light of that. Constantly he's doing that. The book of Deuteronomy is all about that. Moses is telling them a whole book of stuff they already know. And they're about to enter into the the new promised land. He's saying, remember all of this so that as you walk into this new promised land, you will live in light of all this. That's his message for us. Constantly, Christian, church, remember. And as you walk through life, live in light of what has come before. So this morning we're going to be talking about things that most of us already know. Remember them. Yeah, I know you already remember them. Remember them. Observe in your own life and fight against the tendency to shelve this stuff and live in your workplace and in your family and deal with your marriage issue on Thursday night and and the financial shortcoming on Tuesday afternoon. Deal with all of that, with the resources of life, with this stuff shelved. No, remember this. And live with it over and in and through everything in life. Remember So we're going today in Deuteronomy 16. Remember that the Passover lamb has been slain. And you live liberated. Freed from bondage, delivered into the joyous servanthood. Service of the king. Remember that. Now, we don't observe these feasts in exactly the same way as they did back then. We're not a nation. We're not a nation with a central building and we take animals and slaughter them at this central building. We, We don't do that because Christ, the one who is the end of all of the law, the one towards whom this is all pointing, He has come. And it changes everything. He's fulfilled all of this. But there is still very much here for us, as we will see from the Old Testament and from the New Testament today. We are still to keep the Passover, to remember it. How we do that, I think, will become clear as we move through the text. That's where we're going. Let me read Deuteronomy 15, verse 19, through 16, verse 8. I'm going to read the text and then I'll address some of the details to make sure we understand it before making some observations. Deuteronomy fifteen nineteen, 19. All the firstborn males that are born of your herd and flock, you shall dedicate to the Lord your God. You shall do no work with the firstborn of your herd, nor shear the firstborn of your flock. You shall eat it, you and your household, before the Lord your God, year by year, at the place that the Lord will choose. But if it has any blemish, if it is lame or blind or has any serious blemish, whatever, you shall not sacrifice it to the Lord your God. You shall eat it within your towns. The unclean and the clean alike may eat it as though it were a gazelle or a deer. Only you shall not eat its blood. You shall pour it on the ground like water. Observe the month of Abib and keep the Passover to the Lord your God. For in the month of Abib... The Lord your God brought you out of Egypt by night. And you shall offer the Passover sacrifice to the Lord your God from the flock or the herd at the place that the Lord will choose to make his name dwell there. You shall eat no leavened bread with it. Seven days you shall eat it with unleavened bread, the bread of affliction. For you came out of the land of Egypt in haste that all the days of your life you may remember the day when you came out of the land of Egypt. No leaven shall be seen with you in all your territory for seven days, nor shall any of the flesh that you sacrifice on the evening of the first day remain all night until morning. You may not offer the Passover sacrifice within any of your towns that the Lord your God has given you, But at the place that the Lord your God will choose to make his name dwell in it, there you shall offer the Passover sacrifice in the evening at sunset at the time you came out of Egypt. And you shall cook it and eat it at the place that the Lord your God will choose. And in the morning you shall turn and go to your tents. For six days you shall eat unleavened bread. And on the seventh day there shall be a solemn assembly to the Lord your God. You shall do no work on it. The word of the Lord. The first section, which is the last part of chapter 15, is some generic instruction given to us regarding firstborns. And the rest of the law has other things to say about firstborns, firstborn people and how the, the Levites work into that. There are other things about firstborns, but here it's focusing particularly on firstborn animals and the Lord's claim on them and how it is that they are to be sacrificed. They're His. Every firstborn animal. And so, something belongs to somebody else, you can't use it for your own means. You can't shear it. It belongs to him. You can't work it. It belongs to him. You have to give it to him. And ironically, how you do that, how you give it to him, as verse 20 says, is you take it to the place where he chooses to make his name dwell. Echoes of chapter 12. He's going to create a place where his name would dwell. You take this animal that belongs to him there, you offer it to him by sacrificing it, and what does he do? He turns around and spreads a table with it for you and for others who have need in the land. You give him back his animal and he turns and he spreads a covenant table for you and says, let's eat together and worship. He's a generous God. That's what you do with the sacrifices that belong to him. You take them, unless, of course, they have a blemish. Because it has to be perfect. Any blemish, blind or lame, or any sort of serious blemish, disqualifies it. You can't bring that as a sacrifice. God wants and requires a perfect sacrifice. You can still eat that at home, but you can't sacrifice it. You have to bring the firstborn, perfect, blemish-free animal to the place of God's dwelling and sacrifice it. When? That's what leads us into chapter 16. Various feasts. We're going to look at the first one today. People are to observe the month of Abib. Later it was renamed, but that is the month in the Jewish calendar that falls roughly in our springtime, in March-April range. And to be specific, it isn't the month exactly that they are are to observe. It is the Passover that happens within that month. Now, Moses does not give a lot of details here because his audience is very familiar with Passover, with what happened and, and more of the things that they are supposed to do at that time. We can read more about it in Exodus 12 or 13. But the Passover marks the tenth and final plague that God poured out on Egypt as he liberated his people from bondage there. God had chosen Abraham and his descendants after him and said, I will be your God, you will be my people, and I'm going to give you a beautiful, bountiful land. However, before that happened, there came about this this time when they were taken into Egypt and for hundreds of years they were enslaved there. They were trapped there, held bondage. And so, in the timing of God, he said, I'm going to liberate you. I'm going to bring you out. And commanded Pharaoh, let my people go. And he didn't. And so, over nine plagues, he poured out progressively more difficult judgments. One by one, judging the various gods of Egypt, urging, commanding Pharaoh to let his people go, and he didn't. Until finally, at last, God told Moses that the final judgment was coming at which Pharaoh would release them. God was about to strike down every firstborn creature in the land of Egypt. From the firstborn cattle in the fields to the firstborn of Pharaoh himself in the palace. Everywhere. And everything in between. And the only thing, the single only thing that would save anyone from this sweeping judgment, the only way to be delivered from the wrath of God, involved a special sacrifice of a blemish-free firstborn animal. God gave clear instruction They would be saved if they took the blood of this pure animal, killed it at the appointed time, and took its blood and put it on the doorposts, on the top and on both sides. And only those who were in that shelter, who had hid themselves under the covering of that blood, would be saved. On that night, the avenging angel of God would come into the land of Egypt and pass through every nook and cranny of the whole country. And only that blood on that doorpost would turn him away and cause him to pass over and not execute his judgment on those within. The firstborns in those houses would be saved. And God said, when I strike the land of Egypt like this, you all will be delivered. They will let you go and you will come out. I will bring you out in this judgment. That's what God told Moses to have the people do, and that is what they did. And 40 years before Moses wrote this, that is what happened. They took the blemish-free firstborn. Slaughtered it. Put the blood on their doorposts. The angel passed through. In the evening, the 15th day, I believe the 15th day, in the month of Abib. Remember the Lord's Passover. Remember it every year, he says, by gathering to this place that I choose. And offering there a sacrifice just like the one that was offered back then, and when they offered it up and then ate that sacrifice, what happened was they began the feast of Passover, the celebration, also called the feast of unleavened bread, by both names, and we see that woven well here into the text too, beginning in verse three. And again, this connects them back to those events that night 40 years before. Verse 3, They are not to eat unleavened bread. And He reminds them of the affliction. They're calling it the bread of affliction. They, They lived in Egypt in slavery, in hard bondage. It is the bread of affliction. But it is unleavened bread because they fled out in haste. God's deliverance was very sudden. He told them to eat. With your bags packed, essentially. Because when I act, you will be delivered. There will not be a process anymore. It will happen. They weren't able to wait around, so they had to eat unleavened bread. It reminds them of their affliction and of the haste of the deliverance. And they eat it, not only with the main meal, the main sacrifice in verse 2, but also with all the other meals from that week-long Passover feast. For seven days they did this, as verses 4 to 8 spell out in detail. Sacrificing, eating it all each night with the unleavened bread, returning to their tents and then repeating it. Also that, in the verse three, they would remember all the days of their lives, the night that the Lord had brought them out. Freed them from slavery. Fastened them to the new king. That's what they would do at the place where the Lord chose. And if we read ahead into verse 16, we realize that he commands all the males in the land to come. All those boys who are of age and all the men, they come there, but the women and younger children are still at home. And so verse 4 points out that it's not this celebration is not just going on in Jerusalem at the chosen place. There is to be no leaven anywhere in the land. So even the women and children that are at home... It was impracticable for every single human being to travel to Jerusalem. So they stayed home. But even back there, they're joining in in this celebration. They cleanse out all the leaven from all of the land for that period of time. So together, in solidarity, the men and the women, they are remembering God's Passover. That's his commandment to them. That's the passage for today. A feast, one of the first, the first feast, one of the three that they celebrated. What's his message in it for us? Well, I, I think rather obviously the basic thrust of the passage is, is this sentence. We are to regularly remember God's Passover deliverance. That's the point. God commands, God expects his people to regularly remember his Passover deliverance. going to work on that by unpacking it in two main observations. So here's the first one. And it's it's concerned with what God has done. So I'm going to have what God has done and then what we are to do. The first one is about what God has done. Remember, God has slain the one acceptable Passover sacrifice. Is that remember, remember, he has done it. The one acceptable sacrifice, he has slain it. Claiming a people for himself. He commands this annual thing not because there's an annual threat. The first Passover, the very first Passover, is so as to turn away this threat. But the threat does not return every year. Other sacrifices that are offered year by year actually do something. The sacrifices on the Day of Atonement, the sacrifices that deal with sin, they actually are dealing with sin at that day. This one isn't. This is a, this is remembering something from before, which is why he goes through such great pains to put them right in the very shoes of those men on the first night. He matches so much in the month of Abib, at the same time, on the same night, offered an evening at sunset, because that's the time that it happened. And the type of sacrifice is matched. Each family selecting from their own flock that blemish-free animal. Sacrificing it and then eating it themselves and burning it all up so that none remains to mourning. It's just like what he did on the first night. Because he's trying to put them, as best he can, right in those very shoes. And it's graphic. Think about this it 's very graphic communication now, all these men gathered there, surely there were some second borns and some third borns and some fourthborns, etc, but a lot of firstborns. If you gather together children, multiple generations, their fathers, their grandfathers, somewhere in there there 's probably a firstborn and you can reach out and touch this whole animal as the priest slits its throat and then you bring it home and roast it. You can touch it, and then actually you eat it. It's that one or me. That's graphic. This one's life or mine or my son's or my father's, because he's a firstborn. It's graphic. It's gripping. He works to put them there to remind them of what he did and how he did it i delivered you by offering up a substitute lamb that one or you he did not decide to pass over all of those who simply weren't egyptians there may have been some temptation to presume he would I'm not an Egyptian. I don't worship the sun god Ra. I don't worship the god of the Nile. I'm not characterized by this superstitious polytheism that's in this land. I'm not given over to this cultic prostitution and, and the degenerate lifestyle attached to that. I don't make my living off the backs of slaves. I'm not bad like those people are. I'm not an Egyptian. Surely his wrath will pass over me. No, it won't. And surely some were tempted to think that the whole threat was just plain unbelievable. You say that in judgment he will kill every firstborn living thing in the whole country? From the flock in the field, to the firstborn slave in the dungeon, to the firstborn prince in the palace? That's unthinkable. No way. No way is that going to happen. Firstborn morally and ethically good people, firstborn people who actually are somewhat inclined to believe this God, I and mean, we've seen 90s plagues already, some people are kind of inclined to believe it's true. Them too? No. Not possible. Unthinkable. And besides, don't you say that this God is patient and merciful and that He's loving? And haven't we seen that? I mean, there have been nine plagues so far. And while He has been stern, He has also continually given us another chance. Surely, this time too. There is no way that He's going to pass through all of the land and kill every firstborn. And besides, if he does, I don't want anything to do with a guy like that. Surely some thought like that. Surely some thought that he would spare just people because they were Jewish or because they were good. Or because they weren't hostile. Or because they were powerful. Or because they were poor themselves, like the slaves were. Surely He will cause His judgment to pass over such ones as this. But He did not. He made clearly known His intention to save people by one means. And He made that means clearly known. Take a blemish-free lamb... Slaughter it, put its blood over your life and hide under it and I will pass my wrath over you and not strike you. And if you do not do that, I will kill. And that is what happened. That is what happened. Which proves it's true. He is so clear about this and so bent on reminding people and urging us to remember, remember, remember every year come back and He puts us right in those shoes that we remember because, get this, not because, just so you know, more information, because it is a profound prophecy. From the very first moment that He instituted it, it was going somewhere. It was going to the next year to be observed and the next year and the next year and the next year creating the cycle of remembrance because he wants to create a vivid pattern that can then be a place for Jesus to step into and make sense. On the night he was betrayed, Jesus and his disciples were keeping Deuteronomy 16. They had taken a lamb, slaughtered it at the temple, brought it back, roasted it and were eating it. And they went through the ceremony, remembering Egypt, remembering the bitterness of the affliction, remembering the blood of the pure spotless lamb. Free of any blemish that caused God's wrath to pass over. And as they ate, Jesus tied it to himself. See this bread? Me. Broken for you. Eat it. This blood? Mine. For you. Drink it. It makes sense because God made sure that it would make sense. He created a pattern into which he could pour Jesus. The symbolism is, is crystal clear. One blemish free lamb. God who came down, God's provision of a lamb who came down lived sinless, spotless life here. He's God in the flesh. Perfectly keeping all of the law without any blemish whatsoever and yet slaughtered in the place of firstborns and all who trust him. God has slain the one acceptable Passover sacrifice. The imagery is clear, but if we need it explicit, we can look at 1 Corinthians chapter 5 where Paul says, Christ, our Passover lamb has been slain. He's the lamb. God commanded the keeping of the Passover to keep fresh the memory of His deliverance by the blood of a pure Lamb. To keep us pointing forward to this time when one would come, born at Christmas, to die at Easter, and you must be hidden under His blood if you are to be saved from the wrath of God. Do not... I plead with you, do not be tempted to think that His wrath will not fall on those who count themselves good. There is no one good. No, not one. Do not be tempted to doubt His wrath because it seems unthinkable or impossible. The wrath of God is coming. The Scriptures say again and again, Do not presume upon His patience or His mercy. He is indeed slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, but it is appointed for man once to die, for woman once to die, for child once to die, and then to face judgment. He is merciful right now and is pleading with you to turn away from all such foolish thinking that says, I'm not an Egyptian. I'm pretty good. Surely God is perpetually merciful and has no wrath in him whatsoever. There is an enemy of your soul that wants, that is striving strongly to convince you of that lie. It is not true. His wrath is coming and He has provided one way for it to pass over you. Hide under the blood of the spotless Lamb. I plead with you, see this. See it. Turn to Him. Trust Him. And live and you will find that you are delivered out of bondage into the family of God and all of the liberty that is there. And it will happen in a moment. Trust Him. And Christian, as I realize most of us here are already Christians, have already trusted Him. Not all of us. There are some here, I don't know who I'm speaking to exactly, to whom I'm speaking exactly, but there are some here who think you are Christians. Some, some of you know you're not, and you're, you're thinking it through and you're evaluating, but those of you who are in greatest danger are those who think that you are Christians. I urge you, think this through. Have you trusted Christ? Are you banking only, only On His blood turning away His wrath. Trust Him only. But I know that most of us here have. And obviously up to this point I've been speaking to those who have not yet trusted Christ, but in reality the the way that this applies to, to our lives is very similar. It's very similar. God has slain. Christian, here it is to you. Remember, God has slain the one acceptable Passover sacrifice for you. This is true of you then. Remember it, like the end of verse 3 says, all the days of your life. Not just cognitively recalling it. Not just a fact that's somewhere over here on the bookshelf. Remember it. The problem with most of us is that we are prone to, we Christians, we are prone to live like pretty decent people. We're not too bad over this way, we're not too bad over that way, we're not too bad. We're just pretty decent people. And when we run into hardships in life, we live like pretty decent people. We try to kind of muddle through them. Simultaneously thinking too much about ourselves and not enough about Him. Take this off the bookshelf, bring it into life, and remember it. Can you put yourself back into the room on the first Passover? Your family's little house Door shut, animal on the fire, blood on the post, as you hear the cries outside. I don't know if you'd literally be close enough to hear Egyptian families or not, but put yourself there. As you hear that and you wonder, is it going to come to me or not? I'm the firstborn. And my only defense is a stain on the wooden doorposts. I locked the door, as if that matters. Is it going to come to me or not? And then the sun comes up and it didn't. And you rush out of the land, liberated. Stunning. He actually set you free. He actually passed His wrath over you and everywhere you look, is evidence that it fell on the land. Families thrusting silver and gold to try to pay you off while their son is dead. You pass by a field with the cattle slaughtered. The wrath fell, but not on you. Amazing! And you walk out liberated. Today, tomorrow, remember that. He has set you free. Atoned for your guilt, because you weren't guiltless. It saved you. What a God. What a God. This will come to bear on, on the next observation that we're going to move to in just a moment. But, but think through just a little bit. So you deal in your, in your life with afflictions still come to you. You haven't been fully delivered yet. That remains for him to return and do that. Affliction still come to you. What difference does it make to remember his deliverance of you? This, this is... I run the risk of being flippant here when I say it should make you realize, I don't have any problems. The flippancy in it is that obviously we do have problems. But... The remarkable truth, I don't have any. Amazing. He has dealt with me in such a way that I have been delivered. I see my sin. I hear the law preach to me. I see my sin. And guilt begins to pile in on me. Oh, my word. I'm far worse than I realized. Can there be any forgiveness for me? Is there ever going to be any change? And the Passover lamb slain says, yes. You stand in grace with me and I have begun a work in you that I will carry to completion. Trust me. It should be tremendously liberating and heartening. Hope giving. And it should be motivating in your fight against sin. That takes us to the second observation. God has slain for you His one acceptable Passover sacrifice. That's what He's done. And then the next one is related to how we are to deal with that. And it's tied to that second element. We have the Passover and we have the unleavened bread. This one works on the unleavened bread part of it. So let me state this and then Explain how I get there. Second observation. Constantly celebrate the Passover by walking in holiness. We are to celebrate the Passover constantly, moment by moment really, but not just once a year, constantly. And we do that by walking in holiness. This comes from the element of the, the leaven, which is working symbolically here in this passage see that here, and then we'll see it in the New Testament as well. The text forbids leaven. Both when partaking of the first Passover meal, and then all throughout the following week. Verse 3, you shall eat no leavened bread with it. Meaning the initial sacrifice. And that goes on throughout the rest of the week. Seven days you shall eat it, the Passover, with unleavened bread. And not just at the feast proper. Verse 4, throughout all of the land, everywhere the people of God are, no leaven. Six days, seventh day of the solemn assembly, no leaven in it anywhere. Why not? Well, verse 3 hints at it. It's a reminder back to what was going on in Egypt, the, the bread of affliction and the fleeing with haste. That's one element, yes. But there's more. Think about what's going on in the structure of the feast. The memory of the actual event of the Passover meal and the liberation is the first night the great banquet on the first night. And that then then continues on for seven more days. So the unleavened bread, you can see it having just the, we're fleeing in haste element on the first night. But, but why is it for the next seven days? Why? And why seven days? What's the deal with seven? Why not till the next Sabbath, perhaps? Seven, because of the cycle of sevens that's developed throughout the Bible, starting in creation itself. Fourth commandment, six days you shall work, the seventh is a day of rest. Implemented in the land and in the loaning principles, we saw it last week. Seven is written throughout the Bible, and it's written into life. If you think about it, roughly speaking, the phases of the moon follow sevens. Roughly speaking, the nature of a woman's body follows sevens. Not exactly, I know. Roughly speaking, which is tied to procreation, which is tied to life, everywhere we turn we've got sevens at work. And what it what becomes throughout the Bible, seven becomes this cycle of perfect full whole life. So what do we have at the Passover? An elaborate Symbol-laden main event followed by a perfect cycle of life that is without leaven. Let's think into the leaven then. What does it more broadly represent? Well, commonly we just think of leaven as that which makes bread rise. Yeast is a, a form of leaven. There are others as well. It has a little bit more to it than that in the Bible. There are several texts where God forbids leaven to be associated with sacrifices. In some way, he regards leaven as being impure. Perhaps because of how it works. Leaven is fermentation. And when it's added into something, it causes it to break down. Chemical level, I'm not a chemist, I don't know the details there, but at a chemical level, it causes things to break down, to ferment. Maybe that's why God doesn't want it added in to what is offered as a sacrifice. In some way, it causes disorder. It causes a breaking down, a destabilizing. So he forbids it from the sacrifices. And here in the feast, he says, cleanse all the leaven out of the land. So put that together. We have Passover, the event of God's deliverance followed by a week, a perfect life cycle in which there is no destabilizing, impure leaven. Which I say, walk by holiness. Where do I get that? First Corinthians chapter 5. Turn to First Corinthians chapter 5. We've been in this chapter before. It's in the New Testament, maybe 7,500 pages from the end. And it's hard not to think that while Paul is writing 1 Corinthians chapter 5, he has his mind in the book of Deuteronomy, because this is the second time this chapter has touched on something that we've seen in Deuteronomy. We were here a few weeks ago. We were in Deuteronomy chapter 13, and we saw Paul taking a phrase from Deuteronomy 13 to address it to the Corinthian church and tell them how they should deal with the sin that was in their midst. It's the same sort of thing again today. 1 Corinthians 5, starting in verse 6, speaking to them, Your boasting is not good. They were proud of how tolerant they were of sinful alternate lifestyles in their church. Your boasting is not good. And then he pulls an illustration out of regular life. Don't you know that it only takes a little bit of leaven to influence the whole lump? You only put a little bit of leaven in there and the whole thing gets affected. So you shouldn't be boasting about this sin. It only takes a little bit of sin to infect the whole batch. Rather than boasting, verse 7, here's where we start to turn towards our passage, cleanse out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. All that. You are unleavened because Christ the Passover Lamb has been sacrificed. When He was sacrificed, He did something that cleansed you of all leaven, that wiped you clean when Christ was sacrificed. Verse 8, Let us therefore celebrate the festival. How do we celebrate the Passover festival? Let us therefore celebrate the festival not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. That is, let us celebrate the festival by walking in holiness. Paul ties leaven to the former way of life. And that old leaven, the old man, if you will, The old nature has been cleansed from you. You've been liberated from that. That's happened when Christ was sacrificed. Therefore, walk with the old leaven cast off. Walk in the new man, in the man of holiness, given to sincerity and truth, setting aside evil clinging to righteousness. That's how Paul applies the Passover. Released from the penalty of this old life. Released from the power of this old life. You should therefore run even from the presence of this old life. Cleanse out all the leaven. Now, just to be clear, let's just wipe away the symbolism. You see how the symbolism gets us to here. That's in Paul's mind. He reads the Passover and he understands the leaven issue in God's mind to be about heart things. Evil and malice and truth and sincerity. And he says, when you cleanse out the leaven, you're cleansing out the old. When you bring in the unleavened, you're bringing in the new. That's how he gets there. But let's cleanse that aside just to be really clear. he's saying, because Christ has been slain, walk in sincerity and truth. Remember the sacrifice of Christ. Walk in light of it in holiness. Is that clear? He is not setting this on the shelf and urging you to obey from your own power, by your own might, you know, really suck it up and get it done. He's not doing that. With this right here in the picture, together, because He has been slain, walk in holiness. Because of Christ's death, and what that shows you about God, His goodness to provide a lamb. His goodness to forgive you of sin. His revealing of His character. His drawing you into relationship with Him. What it shows you about God. And then supernaturally what it gives you in your heart when you're connected to Him. That is the root of then walking in obedience. Which says you can't walk in obedience without remembering the sacrifice. So, Christian, what am I going to ask you? Am I going to ask you, are you walking in holiness? What am I going to ask you, do you remember Christ crucified? I need to ask you both, but I need to ask you the latter first. Do you remember Christ crucified? I know you all remember. Nobody nobody can forget that. But do you remember? Does it live in you, right here in front of you? Because the next question then is, are you cleansing out all the leaven? Are you walking in holiness? And you can't get to that without first remembering Christ crucified. Another way to put it, preaching the gospel to yourself. We must be a people who do that, individually and as a group. We've got a life training class coming up in the the next quarter, beginning in January, that's going to help us do that. There are three classes. One of them is not listed yet in the bulletin. There's a a class about helping us to reach out to our neighbors. There's a class about helping us raise our, our particularly teenage kids. And there's a class about helping us to preach the gospel to ourselves. Because you must remember this if you can have any hope of walking with God in obedience and holiness. Regularly remember God's Passover deliverance so as to cleanse out of your life all malice and evil and walk in sincerity and truth. Let me pray. Father, I pray that you would speak to us and at, at this moment, but perhaps more importantly, that you would speak to us on Thursday, and next Friday night, and that you would remind us. Lord, most of us here are, are, are your people. We have already been made unleavened in our standing before you, but we struggle to walk in that. And so I pray that you would help us, Father, by reminding us of the Passover lamb slain, of guilt removed, of fellowship established, of power by the Spirit made available to our hearts. Remind us of those things. Turn us towards them. Cause us to seek them, to trust you in them. We are your people and we need you to move on us. So, Father, I pray, help us. I want to pray for those here who don't know you. I pray that if there are some here who don't know you but think they do, would you open their eyes to that and reveal it to them, convict them. For those here who don't know you and know that, Lord, would you show them the the danger of your coming wrath and the hope of your Passover lamb? Make that apparent to them. Make it real to them. Draw them with it, I pray. Do your work here. For your glory, for the good of us, your church, for the spread of your kingdom in the world, do your work here, I pray, Father. In Christ's name, amen.